Welcome to Betrayal Trauma Recovery, BTR.org. I'm Anne. I'm sure you remember what it was like when you were searching for help, maybe for your husband, hoping to find the right program or therapist. That's why I started podcasting. I supported my husband through seven years of pornography addiction recovery, and not one therapist during that time told me I was experiencing emotional and psychological abuse and sexual coercion. I didn't want any other woman on the planet to be in the dark. If you're like the majority of my listeners, you're experiencing the type of abuse that's invisible and difficult to wrap your head around. Your husband is using porn or having affairs or lying to you, and you're getting the same bad advice about how to improve communication or your relationship. If you need support from women who totally understand, check out our daily group session schedule at btr.org group. We'd love to see you in a session today. One simple anonymous way to help spread the word is to click, follow, or subscribe to the Betrayal Trauma Recovery Podcast on your favorite podcasting app. While you're there, every five-star rating helps make this podcast more visible and will help save other women from getting the wrong kind of help, like a couple program that will make this type of abuse worse. For those of you who follow or subscribe to this podcast, thank you so much. Your support means so much to me. Chandra, a member of our community, is back on today's podcast. If you haven't heard the last three episodes, she's been sharing her story, and it's been amazing. So if you haven't, then listen to those three episodes first and then catch up with us here. We're jumping in right at the part of the story where she was talking about a pornography addiction recovery therapist that they had gone to and how she thought that maybe they did a good job. And I was like, no, they didn't. And then I'm about to explain why. So we'll just jump right in at that point. His approach was really good. I mean, it was better than anything else we'd done. We'd been to counseling two or three times. I would not say that his approach was really good if he didn't tell you you were being abused. Actually, that's a good point. You're right. It was not good. It seems like it would work. Like, it sounds good. It sounds kind and like, oh, like our relationship can be healed. It, it does not work. And in fact, it puts an abuse victim in further danger. And that is what is so scary about the abuse recovery world is that they are not informing people or treating or even acknowledging that this is a perpetrator and abuse victim. And so it's just super dangerous for the victims. Yeah, I think I think the reason I thought that it was better than what we'd had was because he did identify to my ex-husband, my second ex-husband, he's, he had identified to him that I was injured. And that oh. I, he did identify that. And he was trying to get my ex-husband to take the necessary steps to address the injury that had happened to me. What injured you though? Was it abuse that it had in, injured you? He didn't call it that, but he, he basically said this can't get better until her injury is addressed properly. And True, but he didn't, he didn't accurately define what had injured you. No, no, it gotcha. didn't go that far, but it was better than anything I had come across up till that point, right? Yeah. yeah. And he would split us up and speak to us separately. So he would give my ex-husband homework to do, but he would ask us to report back as well on how things were going separately. So I got to provide feedback on what was mm. happening myself. You know, it was, a, it was evolved beyond what some yeah. counselors do, right? But it still wasn't quite hitting the mark. Well, I'll just say what I recognized was that my ex-husband was just jumping through hoops and making it look good. I recognized that he was just going through the motions. 
And that's when I realized that I was done. I'm like, we had Christmas and he had gone home on Christmas Eve and was like, he was going to come in the morning and open presents with us. But when he went home that night, he was upset that he hadn't been the center of attention. And he basically, he texted me and said, you know, I'm so depressed. You know, I don't get enough attention from you. I think I'm going to kill myself. Of course, I was terrified. And when he didn't show up in the morning, I actually went over to his house to check and see if he was okay. And I half expected to find him with like a, that he'd shot himself or something. That wasn't the first time he did that. And I realized later that's emotional abuse and manipulative. And it was very upsetting. And after that happened, I just thought, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. This is a cycle. You know, I didn't call it abuse at the time. I just went, this is not, I just don't want to live this life anymore. I deserve better than this, you know? Basically, the entire experience, the 15 years that I've had um, since my first husband left, I have not found decent support in my faith community, with a few exceptions. There's been a few people that were really caring and loving, but for the most part, I found people do not want to talk about it. They don't want to look at it. They don't want to hear your story, and why can't you get over it already? And I don't, I also don't feel like the trauma is well understood, like something like losing a baby or the death of a spouse is, is really seen. It's almost like there's a hierarchy of what's considered trauma and is worthy of compassion and what's not. And I, I really got the sense, I started to think, wow, you know, it almost feels like I'm being ostracized and treated like I'm second class because they think that I must have done something wrong to deserve what happened to me. And I thought about like, why would they think that? And I think it's actually a defense mechanism where people are afraid of that kind of thing happening. Like, I don't want to be the abandoned woman. I don't want to be betrayed. And so if I think to myself, well, she must have done something to deserve it. And I don't do those things, then it won't happen to me. And I, I, without anybody actually ever saying that, that is the sense that I've gotten over the years from the way people have reacted to me and treated me. I tend to agree with you. I think that they think there's some way to manage it. I yeah. also think that a lot of women are in that situation. If they talk about it or if they empathize with you or if they don't blame you at all, then they think that could also happen to me in a very real way in that they are actually going through it. And so they, they think, okay, well, I'm not going to talk about it or acknowledge it or whatever. And then he won't leave me. Yeah. I'm not going to face it. I'm not going to mm -hmm. talk about it. Yeah, totally. And the other thing I experienced was people, you know, just trying to diminish it, like make it into a one-time event. You know, I understand that thing happened to you in the past and that was hard, but you know, you shouldn't let it affect how you are now. And it's like, that is not some, a one-time event. What happened to me, what happened to me has been ongoing for 25 years and I continue to suffer. I watch my children suffer. I continue to be abused. I am as of now, continuing to be financially abused by my first husband. It's not a one-time event. And people don't understand that you're, 
it's a really long process to overcome the trauma that happens around those circumstances. And they don't understand that we're still being abused, actively yes, abused. Actively. And when you tell them that, they're like, well, you know, they, they just don't get it. They like, don't get it. There's nothing that you could say to be like, no, I'm still being actively abused. Well, you're not married to him. So how could he be doing that? Is he hitting you? Is he coming over to your house and smacking you in the face? Yeah, it's not. It's it's so subtle. But the thing is, I found myself getting more and more angry at at that those reactions. And, you know, like I said before, I'm a praying woman. I prayed for help because I knew I was just so angry and frustrated. And I don't think I had ever really had the support that I needed. Like, this betrayal trauma recovery group didn't exist when I was going through my first abandonment and betrayal. And I didn't have any close friends that had been through it. And even my own family, I had, you know, they, they loved me and tried to support me, but no one really understood what I was going through. And I was, I felt very alone for many, many years and was just in executive functioning mode, just trying to make stuff happen for everybody. And when I found the Betrayal Trauma Recovery podcast, your podcast, I have to say that was the first time in, you know, it's been 15 years that I have felt validated, supported, understood. And the anger that I was feeling towards, you know, my faith community and family and all the people that have questioned me and made me feel like they didn't understand or they didn't care or they thought I should just get over it already the anger started to dissipate. I didn't really see it as abuse until I really started listening to this, this podcast. And I only found it in the fall, just a few months ago. And like, it's done so much for me to, to actually really begin healing some of the spiritual and emotional wounds that I've had. You know, I was high functioning, making stuff happen in my day-to-day -day life and was focused on that. But when my daughter, my youngest daughter turned 18 and she actually, she moved out and I was on my own, you know, empty nester in a new marriage. And I realized I had a lot of wounds to heal and I was feeling very angry about some of my experiences with people in my faith community. And I thought I needed help. I think that's why I found it because it was the right time. And I think God knows when we need certain things in our life. And that's, I think that's why I found it when I did. I'm so glad you did. I've heard so many stories like that of people who said, I need help. I need help. They say a prayer, stand up, go to their computer and find this podcast. And I'm yes. actually super, <laughs> super humbled by that, thinking that like yes. Heavenly Father is directing them here. And I'm so humbled to know that that's happening, but also so grateful that he helped me to start this podcast and then it's helped BTR grow so that people can find us. It's grown in ways that I never imagined. And so I think, you know, God's hand really is in this and he really does love us and care about us. And he wants us to find each other and hear these stories because knowing that we're not alone is so healing. Yeah. What you're doing is incredible. And I think it's inspired and it's really, really badly needed. Well, I needed it, which is why I started it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. Exactly. Wrapping up today, is there anything you would share with our audience that you feel like, man, I really wish I would have known this or had I, I mean, you've talked about that, like knowing it was abuse, knowing that you 
are worthwhile and loved and that you can take action to keep yourself safe. I mean, we've talked about some of those things, but if you could go back and maybe just say one thing to yourself back in the day, what would you share with yourself? That's a hard question because there's a lot, there's a lot of things I wish I could have known much earlier, but I think probably one of the most important things would have been to pay closer attention to the gut feelings. And I don't know how, how to get over the um, issue that women face when they're being lied to. It's not normal to actually think that someone is lying to you. I have to, I have to share something. I was reading a book by uh, Malcolm Gladwell called Talking to Strangers. He uses some examples to illustrate something called truth default theory which came out of Timothy R. Levine's research. He's a, he's a distinguished professor at uh, the University of Alabama. He has this theory about how when we communicate with other people, we not only tend to believe them, but the thought that maybe we shouldn't doesn't even come to mind. And it makes it possible for people to communicate in society, but it makes it really hard for women in these situations to actually detect lying in their husband. And... When Malcolm Gladwell was writing about this, he said, we have a default to truth. Our operating assumption is that people that we are dealing with are honest. To snap out of truth default mode requires a trigger. A trigger is not the same as a suspicion or the first sliver of doubt. We fall out of truth default mode only when the case against our initial assumption becomes definitive. We don't behave like sober-minded scientists slowly gathering evidence of the truth or falsity of something before reaching a conclusion. We do the opposite. We start by believing and we stop believing only when our doubts and misgivings rise to the point where we can no longer explain them away. Doubts trigger disbelief only when you can't explain them away. In the movies, the brilliant detective confronts the subject and catches him right then and there in a lie, but in real life, Accumulating the amount of evidence necessary to overwhelm our doubts takes time. He says in his book, you ask your husband if he's having an affair and he says no, and you believe him. Your default is that he is telling the truth and whatever little inconsistencies you spot in his story, you explain away. But three months later, you happen to notice an unusual hotel charge on his credit card bill. And the combination of that and the weeks of unexplained absences and mysterious phone calls pushes you over the top. That's how lies are detected. Default to truth becomes an issue when we are forced to choose between two alternatives, one of which is likely and the other of which is impossible to imagine. Default to truth biases us in favor of the most likely interpretation right up to the point where believing becomes absolutely impossible. This is how most human beings are wired. In those rare cases, where trust ends in betrayal, those victimized by default to truth deserve our sympathy, not our censure. And mm, that's so good. I came across that and it was really validating because I'd had people ask me after my husband left and his affair came out. And I had said, I knew something was going on, but I just didn't know what. And I, I knew something was wrong and I knew he was he was lying to me. And, and I remember one woman in particular said to me, then why didn't you just leave? If you knew, why didn't you just leave? She was challenging me. And I thought, I couldn't explain it at the time. But now after reading this, I understood 
we're not wired to think people are lying to us. Especially not our own husband. Exactly. It takes a lot of evidence to get to the point that pushes us over that edge. And it's funny because after all of this has happened, I think everybody's lying to me. Now, it's really hard for me to trust anybody. I almost think if I could go back to talk to my younger self, I would want to say, don't believe everything people tell you, even and especially not necessarily the people that you trust the most. They might not always be telling you the truth. Be willing to consider that. Real quick before a response, there are a lot of so-called betrayal trauma therapists or coaches or groups out there, but they don't approach pornography use or infidelity as an abuse issue, or they try to quote unquote treat both the abuser and the victim in the same setting, which is unethical. So if you hear something in this episode you relate to, check out the group session schedule at btr.org group. We'd love to see you in a group session today. Now back to our conversation. I'm always telling women in this situation where they find out about porn or they find out about something that's a really big lie, huge lie, Yeah. to reconsider all the other things he said. So for example, if they said, well, I went and talked to my pastor and he said, that I'm fine and that I can, you know, whatever. Maybe consider he never actually talked to the pastor. Maybe the pastor never even said that. I, I said to my therapist this and the therapist said this. Maybe consider the therapist didn't say that at all. There's so many things to consider that you think, okay, well, I caught him in this and then he went to the therapist and this is what the therapist said. And they don't realize that perhaps the therapist never even said that. So we just don't know what we don't know in these situations because we're lied to so much that it is impossible to know where the truth starts and where (laughs) the lies end or, you know, either or vice versa. But what you can know is this person is not trustworthy and I need to be safe. And someone lying to me is a safety issue. Yeah. It's it's not a moral issue. It's not an annoying issue. It's not an addiction issue. It's a safety issue. You deserve to be in a relationship where you are emotionally and psychologically safe because it's not psychologically or emotionally safe for you to be in a relationship where someone is lying to you, especially if they're lying to you constantly. That is just super, super unsafe. And it's also really bad for you spiritually because then you're having to go against what God is trying to alarm you about, like the spirit or your internal intuition, whatever you want to call it, is screaming out to you something isn't right. And in order to trust your husband in that instance, you're having to go against the ultimate truth. And that is the spirit of God. If you're religious or your own intuition or the universe or whatever you want to call it. In my faith, I call it the spirit. And I just want to let women know, like, don't worship evil. (laughs) Don't throw the spirit out the door and the things it's trying to warn you about in order to worship evil, essentially, or believe someone who is lying to you. Get to safety, right? Safety, safety, safety is so important, but it's so hard to determine when you're not safe. That's the problem. It sounds easy, but determining this is very, very, very hard. And so, you know, I don't blame anyone who is going through the difficult time of trying to sort out what is happening, especially if they're never getting the correct information. I think it's insane that people can go to clergy, they can go to therapists, they can go to multiple therapists, and the word abuse is never even mentioned. It's a strong word, but it's the right one. And 
you know, 90% of solving a problem is defining it properly, right? Exactly. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to share your story. You are so strong and so amazing. And just a real quick note at the end, now that you're married to someone who is not abusive, I hear from people in that situation. I've never been in that situation, so I don't know what it's like. But for women who are in abuse situations who don't know it's abuse, when they go to clergy or friends or therapists or whoever, a lot of people will tell them, well, you know, marriage is really hard. It's a lot of hard work. And then I talk to women who have been in an abuse situation and then they marry a man who's non-abusive. And frequently, I would say 100% of the time, probably 99% of the time, they're like, it's not hard work at all. Like it's a little bit of work, but it's not, I don't even know what they're talking about. Marriage does not have to be this grueling, terrible slog. Do you agree with that? How are, how are you feeling? Oh my gosh. Wholeheartedly after the craziness and chaos and pain and struggle of two abusive situations, I would say being married to a normal air quotes, normal man. It's like, it's the most I, I can't even describe the difference. It's so, it's so much easier. It's so peaceful. It's so different. And, and I want to just say this, the difference, you know, being intimate with a man that is not caught up in porn versus one who is, that is like night and day. And that's real love. When you've got a man that is not addicted to porn, you get to be the apple of his eye what I mean is you get to be the center of his world because he's not distracted and looking around at everything else. And that's, I, that's what I wanted getting married was to be in, an, in a situation with somebody that really loved me and cares about me and wants to focus on me and love me and me love him in return. That's what I wanted. And now I finally have that. And it's, it's like night and day. Well, that's what marriage is or should be, right? Yes, I mean, the that's men what it who are be. getting married and don't actually want to love their wife. They're not committed to loving her. They don't really care. What they want is a sex slave, maybe, or someone who does their dishes or something. Why do those men even get married? I don't even understand why they're getting married. I don't either. Control, maybe? <laughs> I'm not sure. Yeah, somebody to do the dishes and make dinner? I don't know. I think they perceive of it as a, a control thing, right? Someone's maybe. in their power. And a lot of the abusers also like it when their wives have children because then they can entrap them, right? Mm -hmm. So from a religious standpoint, like, oh, get married, have kids. And abusers are like, great, because then she will be stuck with me forever. And getting away from me is very, very hard. So all the uh, religious scripting, too, makes it difficult for us to recognize, like, maybe having a kid with this guy is not the best idea, you know? It's, it's so, so complex. And I really appreciate you taking the time to share. And thank you for saying that. Because the more women I talk to in healthy marriages that are saying that, it makes me really happy. And I just want to share that with everyone else. Like, when people say, well, you know, this is an average marriage because the average marriage is really, really hard. No, it's then not. The, the answer to that would be, well, the average marriage to an abuser is, yeah, <laughs> it is really yep. hard. Yep. But not a non-abuser. Nope. Not a non-abuser. It's totally different. And I'm so happy for you that, that you've got that. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to um, share your story with us today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for taking the time to, to hear it. It helps to it helps to talk about it. If this podcast is helpful to you, please help us reach other women by following or subscribing and giving us a five-star rating. 
thank you for helping other women find us. If you've already purchased a copy of my book, Trauma Mama, Husband Drama, please circle back and give it a five-star rating. A lot of women are searching for books about betrayal trauma on Amazon, and rating Trauma Mama will help them find this podcast, which is free to everyone. Your donations keep this podcast going. Go to our website, btr.org, scroll to the bottom, click on Support the BTR Podcast. And until next week, stay safe out there 